All right, Dr. Terry Mitchell is back with us. Good morning, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, I've received much grace. I've, I'm a humbler man this morning for, uh, for sleeping in. My, my world is really quiet without hearing aids, and uh, I set two alarms, and I have an armband that vibrates, and uh, none of those worked. Uh, for some reason, I woke up at 5.30. Uh, I did. I did break some Georgia speed laws coming here, uh, so I perhaps need to repent. But uh, God gave nearly 100% green lights from Norcross to uh, this side of Roswell. So, so I'm very grateful to be here. Thank you for having me. I'd like uh, for us to review the anxiety cycle that I brought up. Uh, last time, it's, it's the small graphic that you have in your books, your manuals. I'll remind you of some definitions uh, around that. And today we're going to be looking at what's called the false self or the pose. The... Uh, the, po- the false self is... Once you see it, you can understand it, but it's difficult to present in some ways because we like our false selves, uh, and our faults, in many cases, for m- many of us, our false self or our pose has been how we have lived in this world. Now, I'm not saying that exclusively, but it's how we handle conflict. Most of Uh, The development of the false self is how we handle conflict and when we are in pain. And uh, so, but if if we're not aware of it, it's hard for us to to uh, go. Well, that that's who I am, and 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 how how am I supposed to be anything else? Uh, But there are lies and messages embedded in the false self, and there are protective strategies that, that we use that are often relationally hurtful or damaging. So I'm going to try to help us unpack that in, in, the next, uh, in the next hour. So I need, to, I need to get water in my mouth first, and then uh, we'll talk about the anxiety temptation cycle. Okay, I'm going to go back and start with this anxiety pain circle here. And the the definition that I use for this anxiety pain, the biblical word is uh, predominantly fear, but it's a fear that resides inside of us and is not something that responds to an external uh, stimulus, such as a snake crawling through the room. Once the snake is gone, generally all of us are okay. The feeling is about the same, but the difference between anxiety is it stays on the inside, and it kind of hums in the background. And depending on what triggers that, then that anxiety comes to the forefront. Probably, uh, how many of you are not married? How many of you have been married? Okay, so the not marrieds have been married. So I'll probably use more wife illustrations without in any way trying to denigrate or diminish uh, our wives in any, any way, shape, or form. Our wives, though, are often our greatest threats. We experience more threat of loss in our marital relationship than we probably do in any other relationship. Most other relations, we do experience threats of loss in relationships at work, uh, driving in traffic in Atlanta. We've got to be somewhere at a certain time and we're being impeded by two cars going the speed limit side by side. 
so there are experiences that will trigger this place of this anxiety. So back to the definition, anxiety is an apprehension, a form of pain that is triggered by a threat of loss to deep desires, core values, and our core identity. And last week I spoke about the core identity briefly as being that we are sons, beloved sons, well-pleasing, favorite, delightful sons of God. Uh, I believe that this core identity we receive uh, naturally in birth, and then this core identity is made alive in Christ when we are born again. And so there's a life of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that is inside of us that is constantly working on, on the inside. So, anxiety is an apprehension that is triggered by a threat of loss to deep desires, core values, core identity that we deem essential to our personalities. These are critical to us. Uh, Core values, I pointed out, uh, truth, justice, uh, right, wrong, uh, lies, most of us uh, go, that, that's not very g- good. Uh, good family, healthy family, children, grandchildren, uh, uh, great-grandchildren, part of that family, uh, wholesome marriages. In, in fact, I, I've spoken with couples who value the marriage and won't get divorced, but they don't like one another. So they're in, they, they hold a core value that marriage is so important, even though I, I'm just going to be a roommate in the house with this man or with this woman, uh, then uh, the, the core value is we don't break the marriage vow. But although they live in, in a lot of pain. Uh, the deep desires are the yearnings that, that stir within us, the longings that we have. Uh, and those touch many areas. The, uh, when I was a boy, I saw, uh, as a military brat, I traveled all over the world, and my, my dad was stationed at Yokota Air Base in Japan, and then we moved to a place called uh, Otis Air Base in, on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And my, my parents thought that uh, looking at leaves that were turning colors in the fall was something important to 13, 14 year old boys. So they're driving through the Massachusetts Turnpike looking at leaves and I'm sitting in the back seat reading a book. I just go on uh, leaves. And uh, there was this little, little car that we passed and I thought, wow, that's a nice little thing. And it, I, I read the back of the car, it said, P-O-R-S-C-H-E. I went, Porsche, Porsche. And uh, I thought, oh my goodness, that's a beautiful car. It was a 356 Cabriolet with a luggage rack on the back. And a few years later, uh, or within a year, I said to myself, I made a vow. I'm going to own one of these things. And, uh, and so, let's see, I was about 14, 15 at that point, so at 55 I owned one. Forty years later, I had the dream. Uh, I, I commuted 100 miles a day, and I drove that car as my daily driver for 100 miles. I had a 2001 911 Carrera. And I actually drove the speed limit more in that car than any other vehicle I'd owned except a 61 split window VW van, which wouldn't do the speed limit. And uh, so, uh, so I, I've made a vow, and then I performed my vow 40 years later. And these are tied into some of the places of the false self. I thought by owning a Porsche, I would be somebody. So I'm born again. I've been a believer now for uh, nearly nearly 40 years, and uh, and I I still have this within me. I I need something significant external of me 
to tell me that I am somebody. So I couldn't grasp this thing of being a son, a beloved son, a well-pleasing son. I had to have uh, either, uh, for, for me it became credentials, uh, academic levels, uh, things that I create. Those were telling me, yes, I created them, but they were saying that I had significant, significance, value, importance. So the things that we take to do that then become places within us that are forms of our protective strategies. The other part of protective strategy, as part of our pose as well, the other part of our protective strategies is uh, we develop our protective strategies as children. And then we just modify them and make them more sophisticated as we get older. How many of you have been in a family group and you've told uh, a sibling who is 40 or 50 years old, you're just acting like a child? You're so childish. Well, you're childish because the protective strategy that has you in the place once you've been triggered in the conflict that you're in, you're behaving as you were when you were five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's just more, more more refined with that. So let me take a quick question with an interpreter on the front row, or, or Bob, if, if you're here. Any, what questions do you have as I've done this review of the things that we went over last week? My oldest child is six years old, and um, she carries herself really well, but also, you know, because she's the firstborn, uh, she's my trial and error baby. And um, so we tend to overdo it at times when disciplining her, correcting her, but one of the things that we've taken note of is she tends to be pretty anxious about making mistakes or not being perfect. Yes. Um, So, you know, given that this is something that has become even more top of mind for us, you know, like how do we address or engage in a way where anxiety doesn't become the dominant uh, emotion? Because while we may overdo it at times, she does receive a lot of affirmation. Yes. Uh, the focus is here in the core identity that you, you continually, uh, what fathers do in, in, in relationship with families, fathers bestow identity. So our presence or our lack of presence will create identity for our children. So uh, part, part of the uh, assurance that we try to build and bestow for our children would be the assurance that they are beloved, favorite daughters and sons. So we keep that constantly in the forefront that you're, you're my beloved, favorite daughter and son. She's also learning that there are things where she gets approval and disapproval, her desire to satisfy and please uh, you as parents uh, is also running in this mix. And so she wants to do this. So it, let's say she comes up short and you are, y'all are correcting her. She has experienced that not as discipline for her good, but she's experiencing that as a threat of loss. It's a threat of loss of, around something of her desires to please. She feels the, uh, the pain, the apprehension of that. And then she, she is developing right now a protective strategy. She will either uh, come to you and, uh, and you, know the, you know the parts of her strategy. She will try to be pleasing or she will withdraw totally. 
I have a, my grandson right now is in the attack mode, and uh, he attacks and then has an immediate withdrawal. He, his father being a Marine, apparently that's a strategy that he learned. And so he, he's first to attack. So when his mother or father corrects, he attacks the parents and then withdraws from them and refuses to be in communication. Seven years old. So he, my grandson is building a protective strategy that right now is working for him. So it's in the building of the identity. It's being aware that your daughter has desires that she wants trying to satisfy. There are places within all of our kids that we have to bring them, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And we have to bring them up with uh, a sense of wisdom and help and encouragement. And so probably understanding or asking, what are you trying to get here? What is it that you want? And then this is what we want. How can we, we, and we feel a responsibility to you. Also, and what's building within her would be elements of her false self. She is understanding uh, messages about being, my parents think that I have failed, therefore I'm a failure. That's not necessarily the case, but that is what, is, what goes on in, in our heads. And, and then we have an adversary who is against us within this who doesn't mind inserting first accusations into our heads. In fact, I'm more convinced that the first time we hear an accusation against us, even the first thing in the morning, it may not necessarily be your own voice. And so what the accusation does is try to get us in a place of, I agree with the accusation. So if I'm in a place of failure, or I've made a mistake, and I'm beginning to feel the weight of that failure, then, then the message is, you're such a failure. Or, or relating to my wife, my message is, I can't please this woman. Well, actually, I do all the time. It's just in that moment I hear, you can't please this woman. And I go, yeah, I can't please this woman. And then I begin to think about it. I'm like, well, she did this, and she did this. And suddenly I'm spun out, and I'm now looking at all the the um, few times when I haven't pleased her, and I forget about the 95% of the time that I have pleased her, or 80%, whatever that is. Yes. Yeah, and then just, I guess I, I've looked at this, but I totally overlooked the whole aspect of threat of loss. And, you know, we had a situation um, just last week where my daughter had been holding on to something for three weeks and um, holding on internally or holding on tonight? no holding on internally um and you know it's 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 been really upsetting to to, to my wife and i but yes. i mean you know she you know she values relationships and she feared that she would lose a friend yeah but the friend made a comment you know two six-year-olds um, but the friend made a comment to where it's like, you know, we, we, we talk about, um, like kids emulate things that they've learned or heard, you know, elsewhere. And in this particular case, um, you know, the, the little girl said to my, my daughter, like, Ooh, your skin is Brown. Like, like something's wrong with you because your skin is Brown. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, and she knows like, that wasn't a good statement. That, yes. And yes. she knew it needed to be addressed, but she didn't know how. Yes. Uh, but she was hesitant to come talk to my wife and I, in this case, my wife, about it because, you know, we're, you know, keenly focused on the identity piece, you know, and not yes. so much identity in being a black or brown woman, but just identity in this is who God made you. Um, and you should feel really good about how God made you, regardless of what yes. other people may yes. see, think, or feel when yes. they encounter you. Yes. What I'm hearing you say is that you are uh, uh, trying to answer her question, what is this about color? And you're trying to do it in a way that is loving and generous to, to, to those who uh, have been less loving and generous. Uh, or... or 
the kids themselves are trying to explore the differences that they have with uh, and to try to make meaning for themselves of what is the difference in color and rather than rejecting it. Uh, then, then you move into a teaching lesson on the power and the spiritual discipline of forgiveness that you can do with your daughter. And let, let me model how we do this aspect of forgiveness. And so what it does is instead of her uh, building, typically when, when we have an offense, if we allow it to maintain and grow within us, that offense then becomes a form of resentment. We begin to resent a person uh, for, for the offense or many offenses that he or she has caused. And then from resentment, a number of resentments build in, builds into a place of bitterness. So the progression from uh, an offense to bitterness is actually, it actually takes a while. What I'm hearing is that y'all are working to be, help her be able to let go, which is what the meaning of uh, forgiveness is, to let go or release, and then to extend a grace to, to her as she wrestles with this idea. Uh, but, but she is building this, this uh, entire cycle as she's trying to discover who she is in here. As you teach her what forgiveness is, is a form of worship. As you teach her worship, she's more likely to break the cycle rather than moving into, uh, well, I'm, I'm worse than you or I'm better than you type framework. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, so I, I need now, let's move on in light of the time and uh, I need for you to look at the page that says, with the Roman numeral three, you can become aware of how evil hunts you and overcome the attack of the evil one through the fellowship that desires to protect you. So I need to make a comment on the handout, the first three pages of the handout that you have. Uh, this comes, this, this is uh, the... Uh, late afternoon, this comes from a session in the late afternoon of a Wellspring Battle for Men's Heart retreat. It's a four-day intensive. It's not a retreat. Don't expect any rest. Expect a lot of digging on the inside and, and stuff going on. So this is uh, the afternoon after having already had about 24 hours of teaching, engagement with God, and small group activity. So some of the language as you look over this will go, oh, that, that, that word doesn't make sense to me, this doesn't. What happens is there's been a teaching before this session. This was page uh, 83, 84, and 85 in the guidebook itself. And so, uh, what, so I'm, because I'm honoring Wellsprings Group and their permission to let me use this for this event, uh, I've, I've left the, the text just about as it would act would be uh, portrayed in the guidebook. So uh, I don't think the with the title right now we recognize that evil hunts us. Uh, we see that in the garden from the from the earliest part of the woman's life. Evil pursued her. There's something about her beauty, her majesty, her glory, her mystery. She represents a lot of the things of God that we as straight line guys, uh, women have curves. They are different than we are. They are mysterious. You never learn who they are. You come to kind of a, a close uh, relationship, but she'll do something. You'll go, where did that come from? And uh, so we're constantly learning our wives just as we are constantly learning God. We get familiar but we never quite come to a depth of understanding. But we can, as we begin to love one another as husbands and wives, then we can know them through love, not just for their attributes. So we're not looking to understand them, but to know them in a depth of love that God puts within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as the evil hunts us, hunts the woman, hunts us, uh, there's a battle that goes on inside of us, a battle for our hearts, 
And so part of what we have to do is understand what, is, what has brought us to a place and what are the characteristics of our own poses. And so uh, the definition that we use for pose here is underneath the pose. The pose is the way we try to make life work apart from utter dependence on God. So part of our transition, our journeys are, are to learn uh, what are the things that keep me, from, what are the things that lock me up, move me into uh, a false self, and what are those characteristics, and then when, do I, when am I most likely to put on my pose, my framework? I'll make a comment here that your pose is also very similar to part of your glory. It's going to look very similar to your temperament and your personality. You just turn, what we look for then in the aspects of the pose is what is the energy driving your pose? Is it love or is it fear? So are you reacting to the trigger and you're responding or reacting out of fear? Are you attempting to love the offender? That, that would be an, looking at an energy source for this. But we're going to look at some of the characteristics of the pose. And so if you'll move to page two that I have, these are some of the pose elements that make up just about every single pose, all the characteristics that we could think of as we were developing this material. What is it that make up the pose? Let me let, me let you take... Just a few minutes here. Uh, let's take three minutes to read these six items. And then uh, if you'll take and uh, highlight something that circles something that gives you, uh, you have a question about, or put an asterisk or check mark next to something that is a new insight and has made you curious. So take a look at these six elements here. Definitions are important enough. Let me walk you th through them. I'm, I may uh, lift and read, and then I'll try to expand. Uh, and starting with protective strategies, uh, we all have them. When, when we encounter pain, we are going to find a way to get out of that pain. We, we just do. And so we learn, as I said earlier, we learn the strategy that works for us. Some strategies work, some don't work. Uh, I remembered as, as a child uh, what I found that worked best for me and really actually suited my personality was I'd withdraw. I have a brother who's an attorney. He liked to argue with my dad. Sometimes I would provoke my brother to argue with me my dad would make comment about our arguing, and I'd just step into the background because I knew my brother was going to argue now with my dad, and I would watch the entertainment. So my strategy and pose was to be the good, good, good son. My, my uh, brother uh, had plenty of credentials to be the loud son. And uh, so as an attorney today, he loves to argue. He likes being in court. He likes to prove people right, people wrong. So there are characteristics about him that are very valuable, but it's also part of his pose. He can shift into pose and argue for the sake of arguing and lose relationships over that. So it's a form, protective strategy is a form of fight or flight, but it's the range in between fight or flight. We, we learn that. So, again, the easiest way to consider this is what do you do in a conflict with your wife? How do you behave? When she says, why didn't you put up your shoes? And you go, well, I like my shoes where they are. So there is either a form of energy that will come up within you and who are you to tell me where to put up my shoes? I mean, so all of this is coming up. We feel the buildup. We feel the pressure in the chest. And, uh, and then we perform according to what, what works for us. As children, if we learn to be aggressive and fight, 
we find ourselves in a fight. If we learn to withdraw and shut down, which is what I began to incorporate in relation with my wife, I would shut down until she backed me in a corner and then I would fight. And that, but, but in my shutting down, I was also stuffing. And as I commented last week, uh, that led to uh, 40 years of stuffing as, uh, as a child and youngster and teenager and adult. Uh, all of that stuff began to leak out in anger. And so my protective strategy had withdrawal as flight, flee as best I could, and then fight as hard as I could. And so I'd have my rage uh, events that would take place for me. So we, we are trying to meet desires and protect ourselves from the feelings of the, the pain that we experience with the threat of loss. So that is a central theme. And if, we, if you begin to look at your POSE framework, you can there are many ways that we, you can look at all of these issues to enter into beginning to begin to discover your pose or your false self. But the protective strategies, if, if you, once you get an, okay, that's a protect, that is a protect, oh, that's a protective strategy. Once you begin, begin to see that and articulate that for yourself, get it on paper, then you begin to see the patterns that work within you uh, as, as you're developing your pose. All right, vows. We are exhorted in Scripture that we have to pay our vows. Jesus, in fact, said, don't, don't swear by Jerusalem, don't swear by this mountain. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Once you vow, then you are required to pay the vow. And so most vows have language like this. I will never... I'm going to always do this. Or as I did with the Porsche, I'm going to own this car. Now it seems innocuous, but there was a drive. Every time I saw a Porsche, own, own. It was almost this language that is going, uh, energy that is going up within me. And I kept looking and looking and looking. And I kept looking at budgets and I kept looking at different things. So there was an energy of constant consideration of it, and uh, in many ways in an attempt to fulfill this vow. Well, was it a bad vow to own the car? No. What happened, though, as I commented, the car made me significant rather than coming from my significance that I was able to enjoy a Porsche for a year. It's the one car that I ever owned, bought, owned, and drove, and sold that I made money on. I've owned a bunch of cars in my life. All of them been used, even the Porsche. But I, I made, I sold, drove it for a year and made $2,500 on the thing. So uh, they, they hold their value more than most cars. The energy. The energy is either going to be fear or love. Uh, it, the energy is the emotions that drive us. The energy are the desires that we possess within us. So sometimes we have to look at what, uh, especially as I learned in conflict with my wife, I had to pause and back out a moment and say, what's going on within me? So the question, wh where is this energy coming from? What is going on here? Uh, one moment I'm calm and peaceful and and. Uh, content the next moment I'm, I'm exploding. So what is happening in me? What is this energy that is taking place when I experience a threat of loss? So we to pay attention to the elements of the energy that takes place within us. Typically, again, you reduce it. It's some form of fear, some form of, uh, uh, or some form of love. Poses are not developed out of love so I would say most of the energy behind this will be fear. I'm going to combine lies believed and messages received. Uh, uh, may, may I make a comment, Carl? Carl, Carl Lester. Carl Lester. Uh, 
The enemy is working to put lies within your daughter's head, and then from those lies, such as there must be something wrong with you because of the color of your skin, that's a lie, and the message that would be taken in from that would be, uh, there is something wrong with me because of the color of my skin, okay? So the lies and messages are not very far apart. It's the message that lives within us That is, once we have come into agreement with that message, yes, there is something wrong with me because of the color of my skin, uh, then then we are now in a place where we are developing a protective strategy around that, that message. So the lies and the messages are very similar. Uh, as I commented previously, my dad, as a military man, uh, believed in martial law within his home. My grandfather joined the Army Air Corps in 1918 uh, at the early stages of air power within the United States, just right after World War I. Uh, he worked with armament uh, throughout his career. He uh, flew with Billy Mitchell in the bombing of uh, the dreadnoughts and showing how air power can defeat naval power. And so the attack on the dreadnoughts in Hampton Roads, Virginia in the 20s, my grandfather was there as part of that. And then my grandfather's ground crew uh, set up the Doolittle Raider airplanes, the B-25s that flew and attacked uh, Japan at, at the very beginning in April of 1942. Well, my grandfather's crews uh, stripped down the aircraft and uh, put them together. My grandfather went from a senior chief master sergeant and received a field promotion to to a captain during the war. So my grandfather, hard-driving military man, he uh, he was shorter than I. He had forearms or something like that that looked like Popeye, and he had biceps that would fit my calves or my uh, thighs, just a very strong man. He was a hard man, a cussing man, a drinking man, and so my dad was raised by this man. So my dad was uh, hard. He didn't cuss. He, he felt that wasn't healthy, and, but uh, when he said something, son, I'm going to give you a spanking. 100% guarantee his word was always true. And so there was a season in my life, my brother's life, where we weren't getting along and we're, the world was, uh, uh, just wasn't working for us. And so my dad embarked on a, a discipline chain of you can do this or you get a spanking. We failed to, often failed to do it and we got spankings. Uh, Those spankings at age 10 and 11 began to have their effect upon my brother and me. And he wasn't wasn't vicious in the spanking. He said, you're going to get three licks, and we got three licks. Except they were excruciating. He didn't pull back from it. He didn't regard the blueness of the wound at all. He used a thing called a Jerus hairbrush. I hate them today. Uh, they were metal with slits in them. So he spanked us with uh, blue jeans, and that didn't get our attention. He spanked us with underwear, and that didn't get our attention. He spanked us on bare bottoms and then said, you can't cry. So at age 11, after one particularly painful uh, event, and I can recall it, I can give you the details, uh, I, can, I can give all the details, and they are part of my false self and how I develop my own pose. I embraced my dad's message, you cannot cry. I took it inward. I said, I'm not going to cry. Uh, in, in that one particular spanking, I had begged my dad on my knees in tears, don't spank me. And I got a spanking. So I, I came to um, their came a a message to me, uh, there's nothing you can do to talk to your dad. I begged my mom, who was standing beside my dad, not to let my dad spank me. Uh, My mom was mute. So I developed a message, um, mother's, something to the effect of, uh, you cannot rely on mothers. 
they can't, there's nothing they will do to help you. So uh, I'm pretty much on my own, so in relationship with that. And then it was the first time I'd ever begged God. Uh, we were not Christians. Uh, we were Christians because we lived in the U.S. and because we went to church every now and then. I, none of us within my, this part of our family were born again. Uh, so I begged God not to get a spanking. And guess what? He too was silent. He too was distant. And I got a spanking. So I, I, you can't trust God. You, you can't trust women or mothers. Uh, and dad is the punisher. And so you just have to really, he's the one who causes the most pain. You have to watch out for that guy. And so I began to develop a, a pose around my dad. I realized that, you know, I, I, I've got it. I understand where pain comes from. I finally got it at 11. And so I became, at least as far as my dad goes, pleasing, pleasing him just to keep him from pain. At age 15 once, I mocked him to his face. That was a mistake. Uh, I didn't see the fist. He hit me in the chest so hard and so fast. Uh, I was across the room and uh, banged up against uh, our stereo system and was sitting on the floor. And then he was standing over me and said, never laugh at me again. And that was the last time I laughed at my dad. So my dad brought into my life experiences of pain where I've developed healthy, for, for my own preservation, protective strategies. But those protective strategies led me to be a false self, and I discovered if I withdraw at the right time, in almost any circumstance, if there's conflict with an authority and at work, there's conflict and authority in the church, there's conflict with authority uh, relationally, then I withdraw. I also had an internal message that uh, uh, that question my own authority. I don't have authority until I'm given authority. Rather than I am a son, a beloved son, a pleasing son, and from that place of being a son, I do have my own authority. So I think even in some ways, uh, the progression and, and the stuff that I have done in uh, academics uh, was a form of my, I, I, as I've observed it, Part of my false self, part of this uh, place with that. Yes, I was good at, uh, at, at studying, but it was also the place where I was alone. I was silent. Nobody would mess with me. Uh, I was going to be safe. It became the safe place for me. And then finally, uh, and I've, sh I've shared this through my example, the roots, the patterns, the uh, family, people, environment that help shape our pose. These could be positive or negative, and the ultimate pose is the fall. Uh, and from the fall, we gain fear. So the ultimate uh, root of the pose is fear. We are afraid until we meet Christ, and then he begins setting us free from our fears. Okay, let's come back to what questions would you have about the definitions? This is just a question about your, uh, your upbringing. Did, yes. Did the consequence of not uh, obeying your father because of the excruciating uh, spankings, did it make you... Uh, in any way comply more with what he wanted you to do or not do? No, I, I uh, high compliance. Uh, yeah, I, I learned with authorities. That's what I learned. It, it became more of an authority. So the message was, man, you cannot mess with dad. That, that was part of the message. But the other part of the message was, dad's an authority. And you, I, I, what I, happened to me is I lost voice. So when I could have had a legitimate conversation with that. My internal message was already telling me, what's the use? So if I had a need, I wouldn't go to my dad for the need because what this message is going on, what's the use? 
He's, he's not going to listen. I begged him. He's not going to do things. So what it did for me in that while he, I complied to everything my dad did, but I also complied then to pastors, and I complied to uh, work authorities, uh, department chairs, uh, deans, uh, anybody in authority over me. So it, instead of helping me grow in my own identity as an authority, my dad uh, was part of how, and my choice, my developing my protect strategy and false self that I began to diminish my own sense of authority, my own capacities, unless I'm doing it by myself. So this bled over into as I married a wife and now I have to do something with somebody else and she comes into conflict with me, I'm withdrawing. So we would have this strange dance. She would, she would be in conflict, pain all of a sudden, and I withdraw from her. And that was the last thing she wanted. She, with her false self-position, feeling alone and abandoned, she becomes more aggressive. She was an only child uh, of two older. Her parents were older. They were hardworking uh, and not around. So she's kind of on her own, and she's used to taking whatever is hers. It's my house. Just give me a little place in the house. I mean, that, that was my idea. If you just give me a chair and a desk, I'll be okay. You can have the rest of the house. So it became part of how I related to the world through a sense of my false self. Once I began to see that I have authority, then I, I can, I mean, I'm striding the world in some ways. Part, part of trying to be significant in my life, those are things, those are the Things where I went to Bosnia without a gun. I went to Afghanistan without a gun. I went to China back when it was, uh, when I was uh, kind of pasty white in a sea of uh, yellow-skinned people. I, I understand part of what it feels like to be in a minority. And everybody's looking and going, not so sure about this white guy. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if I've answered your question. I, I have rambled a little bit. I have a, I have a question for you. Um, right. This is how I learn. <laughs> um, in all of your experience in engaging with men in you know, the counseling environments that, that you have, would you say that um, one of the biggest challenges that men face that even drives uh, the false self or the insecurities that exist within us um, emanates from what our relationships were like with our fathers? Yes, absolutely. Uh, relationships are lack of relationship. Let's say your father worked all the time and was absent. What did he bestow? Absence. Hey, that's what he gave you. There's no voice speaking into your life. There's no affection. There's no aspects of love. There's no direction. Uh, so you can have a father who can be very strongly directive in one area, again, with my dad for spanking. As I became, once I was born again, and then my dad was born again, after I was born again, then there came a wave through my family. And my dad knelt down with Dr. Kennedy in front, of, in front of a TV with Dr. Kennedy and gave his life to Jesus in his study. Uh, after I was born again, uh, I, my sister and I coming back from the funeral of my grandmother, I led my sister to the Lord in, in our car. Uh, my brother was, had been in a fight with his wife who had bitten him and he had to get stitches. He came to my home and over the weekend... Uh, Myself and two friends led him to the Lord. He became a believer. So there was a wave of salvation that moved through my family and began to shift and change us and begin to bring redemption to, to the elements of our pose. So if mothers are absent, mothers bestow nurture, nourishment, and a robust sense of well-being— and if they are absent, then we are constantly looking for nurture and nourishment. And if, we're, if we are in a marriage where the wife is not nurturing or nourishing, 
We, we are dry. We are thirsty. We, we are hungry for something that we don't have. And so, yes, fathers bestow by presence or identity and how they, they raise us. Mothers bestow nurture, nourishment, robust well-being, and how that happens to us as well. We then think, uh, typically we think if they're both, if we get good nurture, then, uh, or if we haven't gotten nurture, then we begin to take, if, especially if we haven't gotten nurture. We're going to take from the woman. We're going to pull from her. We're going to demand from her. Most, for most of us, we highlight sex. Sexual intimacy is the highest form of intimacy. And so we want that because that will please and help us. Uh, what we grow into is how do I love my wife more deeply and I'm intimate from my heart and not, not from the other head. So it's uh, leading from the heart rather than from desire or, or an unhealthy desire. Not unhealthy, excuse me. I need to say this right. If we love our wives well from our hearts, they are more open to receiving our bodies. That may be better said with that. If we ask to take her body without engaging her heart, she will comply mostly with that, but there will be a distance and we will experience distance in the relationship as we win our wives' hearts, and again, we have poses around our wives. As we win our wives' hearts, then they, they are likely to give us the fullness of who they are as well. Okay, in my case, being a single father and rearing a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, yes, and they don't have that nurturing or affection yes. from their mom, yes. Can you speak into that, please? Yes. This is a place where uh, community and family comes into play. And if you have a good sense of family and you have sisters or, or uh, grandparents or something that they can come alongside of you or the community of the body of Christ where, where the richness of the, the feminine beauty comes alongside they, they will begin to get a sense of what nurture, nourishment, and well-being. If you raise, let, let's, I'm going to do a false example. Let's say you, be, you uh, hate women now, and you're going to raise these kids, and you don't want them around any women, then they will lose that nourishment, nurture, and robust sense of well-being, and they go looking for it. But if you keep healthy women around your children, then they will, uh, they will receive what they need until, until they come to a place of salvation and God begins to work within them through them. Yeah, I, I, would, I admire uh, men and women who are raising their children. Women are trying to help with identity with, with sons when they are raising them alone, and they need other men. Guys need men. Girls need men. Guys need women, girls need women. We're really an important part. And part of the confusion and chaos that is going on within our nation about sexuality uh, uh, just brings confusion into the lives of kids. And, uh, but there's a, we are who we are, I think, by design on purpose. All right. What I need for you to do in, in the next... 10 minutes, uh, if we'll move to page three. Uh, it takes a long time to figure out the vow. I mean, excuse me. It takes a long time to figure out. Vows are easy to see. Messages are easy to see. Most messages are around some sort of accusation. So uh, what you do, you can make a list, and that's what I'm going to suggest you do briefly here, is you make a, a list of the common accusations or lies that you believe. So take, take a conflict with your wife, and then go, what do I hear in my head as I'm in conflict with my wife? 
Those are the messages that you have. So you have messages about her and you have messages about yourself. Those are playing inside of you as you are attempting to uh, uh, resolve a conflict with, with your spouse. So probably the spouse is the easiest trigger and your, your his, oldest historical lies and messages comes from that particular conflict. And then you may have messages and lies around parents, uh, father, mother, if, if, if either were absent or if either were harsh, they create messages inside of us. And they, there are woundings, and uh, today is not a time to do it, but there are father wounds. There are wounds that are particular to the father, and there are mother wounds that are particular to the mother. And they are tied around what the father bestows or doesn't bestow and what the mother does with nurture, nourishment, and well-being. Both of these are painful wounds. And uh, and they are built in. We build a pose around them to try to keep from feeling the pain of those losses. Uh, So what I'd like for you to do is in that gray box... Uh, make comment briefly of what you think uh, about the elements of the pose. Briefly, what questions do you have? And then I'd like for you, in the little space to the right, begin to make a list of the messages and lies. That is probably the easiest way to do that. We're going to take, let's take about seven minutes to do that. You on your own, and if you need to talk to a partner at the table, feel free to do that. You're looking for what messages and lies go within me, especially when I'm in conflict with my wife. That's the easiest place to go right now. Or, I mean, you could, when you are in conflict with your dad or your mom, or you're in conflict with your children, where do you go? What message do you hear on the inside of you? What lies do you believe about yourself or about them that, that is going on? So we'll take seven minutes, and then I'm going to go over uh, somebody on the last page four pose framework by a guy who called himself Mr. Incapable, and he broke this down, but he did it over about a three-month period. So this didn't come overnight. Uh, with my awareness of the the time right now and and uh, making sure that you're out of here by seven thirty uh, let me uh, do some wrapping up comments uh, the The natural question even that I have is where do these guys go from here <laughs> it's kind of I've, I've thrown you in a fiery pit and then I leave and so how do you begin to unpack this more thoroughly and how does it apply to your life as you uh, uh, begin to understand this? I'm, I've got these things that I do that I don't like and I don't want in me and I'm born again and I keep doing them. So how do I get free from them? Uh, sometimes you just have to talk to, to somebody. And uh, that's why you have a pastoral staff or you have counseling staff here at the church. And they, they will sit and listen and they'll help you unpack some of the things that developed your false self. If you'll remember that in the garden, Adam and Eve were already their truest selves that they would ever be. When they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they became then false selves. And the pattern was out of apprehension or concern that God was holding out on them, uh, the woman reached and grasped on her own independent power, took of the fruit, and then gave it to her husband. The woman was deceived. The man made the decision to fall. He knew what was. He had spoken with God directly and knew what not to do, and he chose to not do it. But they became false selves, and in the false selves, uh, the first thing they saw was that they were naked, and now they were ashamed. 
They began, they, the first thing was to hide the nakedness, and that's what the false self does for us. When we become vulnerable and afraid, we want to hide. We have a strategy of hiding that we do. So it is the fig leaf or the covering up apart from God that we do for ourselves to keep out of the place of pain. Uh, Jesus showed us that through worship, we can break the power of temptation and not enter in or begin to, to use, we're not using then our protective strategies. We are in total dependence upon God for his provision and help. So we shift from the places of our own pain and neediness to take that to Jesus. I mean, if you can take, use that as a thing, I got to take my pain to Jesus. And it sounds trite, but it is the salvation of how to get out of this place of the false self. Uh, the pose, and uh, uh, it, in some ways it's not easy, but once you see the patterns, especially around your messages that you believe, and how you react from those messages with people you love, or people you don't love, what is the pattern that goes on within you, and is this is this loving and generous, or is, am I protecting myself from feeling fear and pain? And that's the element of it. If you can say truthfully, I'm following God in this, I'm at peace and rest. Well, not all. In conflict, you can be right, but not necessarily at peace and rest. But sometimes you can be right, and your heart is all wrong. And so you're not loving with, from, from the place of the heart. So all of these things are tied around uh, the false self. So the question, how can I be a good Christian and still be messing things up? I think it lies in that we have uh, a self that uh, is trying to avoid pain. And we learned it as children, and we're still using them. And until we see what we're doing, we will not know that we need to dismantle the false self and release it. Uh, page four, and I won't, I'll just let you read it. Uh, the, this friend of mine worked through this. He's, he's taken the items on page uh, two, each of the items, and he addressed each item. But he did it, he did it in a small community, and they worked with him uh, diligently to help him unpack this, and that can be an insight. So there, uh, uh, I'd recommend two things. Uh, this pose is about an hour and a half session, uh, initially of teaching and a demonstration of what the pose looks like, and then it's an hour long alone with God. And then it's uh, two and a half hours of being in a small group helping to unpack this. So what I've attempted to do now in an hour, uh, uh, there, there would be six, seven hours of unpacking that would start a, a process with Wellspring Group that begins to work on this particular aspect of who we are that takes eight, it's an eight-week pro process. So... Uh, I admire your willingness to be here to, at the very least, listen and then un recognize that, well, maybe there are some elements in me that have a falseness about them, and I'm really not the man that, that I want to be before God. And so some of these items can help you see, begin to help you see what it is that you've done around this place of fear to create this person that you're protecting yourself. Uh, lastly then, uh, I'm a pastoral counselor and spiritual director. Uh, I felt that I was called when I was first born again at age 18 and uh, pastored house churches and counseled jail ministries and counseled. And so I was just kind of, uh, I, I, I'd never done it professionally until I came up here in Atlanta and at age 60, uh, starting my second career and business of being a pastoral counselor and spiritual director. I'm with Soul Care Christian Counseling, and I made note of that uh, uh, at the bottom of page three. 
Soul Care Christian Counseling has an office in Cross Point Church, and, uh, which is up around the corner about a mile and a half. But I, I only meet there every other week on a Wednesdays from 8 o'clock to, to about 2 o'clock. Uh, uh, so, but the whole group itself is a very fine group. There are four of us within the group, Nate Shattuck being uh, one of the principals of the group. Uh, the other thing, I, I meet in Norcross probably 90% of my counseling time. And uh, probably the gifts that I bring to the table is my capacity to listen and then interpret what I'm hearing. I did that as an English professor, and I did that as a pastoral counselor naturally. So uh, I hear stories, and it, once I hear the story, I can help them un- people unpack these elements as I hear story. So, uh, and again, I, I was humbled by being late. You have been very gracious to me uh, with your kindnesses last week and this week, especially this week. I was feeling like I was a failure before I got here, and I had to wrestle with my own anxiety and go, God, you're in control. Uh, So thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Blessings on you. May the Lord uh, prosper you this day. Thank you.